Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, just want to mention we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a dollar a month there, or if not, maybe leave us a friendly little review on iTunes. On a more somber note, I just want to mention briefly that we just had a patron supporter that passed away suddenly, Austin Wiles, and I just wanted to take Ooh. a moment on air. Austin was someone who was involved with you know our friends at um, Acid Horizon, part of their reading groups, and we had corresponded as well via Patreon. So I just wanted to take a moment and um, celebrate Austin's life and, and wish him well on, on his journey. Not to be too maudlin there, but um, I just had to, had to give him a shout out. Just found out about that this week. We're very excited to bring friend of the show, Grant Maxwell, on the happy hour today. And we're going to take a look at his new book, Integration and Difference, Constructing a Mythical Dialectic. So Grant, thanks so much for joining Taylor and I on, on the happy hour today. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, guys. I'm very happy to be here with you today. We usually start with, with our opening question about how one gets into philosophy. And I, I always love this personal story. I did want to ask you before that, before you get into your, I don't know if, if you think about it as like catching a, like a fever, because like sometimes I think about this when I think <laughs> about how I got into philosophy, it's almost like you get bitten by like a bug or something, right? But I did want to ask you too about your two other books to mention, which I didn't get a chance to look at. One I know was on rock and roll and philosophy, and I thought that was really interesting and wanted to maybe just give you a second to, to talk about your two other works, and then you can kind of give us your anecdote, whatever it is, you know, if you just have a memory or you just want to like anything you associate with what brought you into, uh, into philosophy. My path toward becoming a philosopher has been a bit circuitous. So I was doing a a doctoral program at the City University of New York in Manhattan in English, actually. Yep. And so about, uh, you know, about two, two and a half years into my coursework, when I was pretty much finishing up my coursework, mm -hmm. I realized that I was taking every available theory class. Yeah. Uh, so I was taking classes on Foucault and Derrida and uh, Haraway. I even took a couple classes with a great scholar of um, William James and Henry James. Yeah, um, so I see. We, so I we, see. We, yeah, so we read James and Bergson. I realized that I was just enjoying reading those more than the literary texts. Right. Ultimately, what I realized is that the reason why I went into English is because my favorite professor in undergrad was this brilliant literary scholar at the University of Texas at Austin. His name is Adam Zachary Newton. And I think he's now the head of the English department at Yeshiva University in New York. Okay. Uh, and so I realized that I loved the modes of explication and interpretation characteristic of 
literary theory more than the literary texts themselves, although I, I do love literature. And so at that point, I, I seriously thought about switching to a philosophy department. And I looked at some of the philosophy departments in around New York, and it seemed to me that it was all pretty much, you know, exclusively analytic philosophy. Yes. And so I decided I love these French theorists and I love, mm-hmm. you know, pragmatism. And I, I got really into Whitehead soon thereafter. Of course, the English English philosopher. I decided that staying staying in an English department was was the place to be, at least for my my development in terms of my own thinking. If not necessarily, wasn't thinking as much about a career trajectory because I made <laughs> that a little bit complex for myself. Gotcha. But, gotcha. But yeah, but um, just in terms of studying the philosophers that I wanted to wanted to study. So yeah, and then and then you mentioned my books. Um, my first book was which is called How Does It Feel. It's uh, Elvis, uh, the Beatles, Dylan, and the philosophy of rock and roll. That was actually my dissertation. Interesting. Uh, That's yeah, really well, cool. Yeah, it's you know an early. It was developed from my dissertation, I would say. And then I wrote a short book that that I think is leans a little bit more toward popular philosophy, but I'm still I'm still very proud of it. And it's a you know the, the dynamics of transformation. Mm-hmm. That one came out in 2017. And then I just. That was when I really started to get deeply into Deleuze after that book came out. Gotcha, um, gotcha. And so, as we were talking about before before we started recording, um, Deleuze is just, you can just go down so many rabbit holes with his work. Yes. Uh, and, and just, there are an infinite number of paths to follow in terms of looking at the, the theorists that he, that he was interested in. So that's sort of what I've been doing with myself for the last six years or so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like your your story because it actually sounds a lot like mine, you know, when I remember taking a practical criticism class, which was the kind of the gateway to the higher English senior level classes. And mm-hmm. that's when, you know, I got a copy for the course, the Norton Anthology of, of Theory and Criticism. And I think that that exposed me to so many theorists all at once, which was it could have been a, a way to say like, no, that's not, you know, that, that could easily like deter people. But I think that like, you know, getting into Lacan, Derrida, it would be much later that I got into Deleuze because I, just to cut my narrative short, I was just, you know, resonating with you that that's kind of how I got into it. And, and I do agree with you that English departments, comparative literature departments have a, a kind of broader freedom of approach, whereas philosophy departments are very I don't want to say insular, but they, they're territorial, right? They, they have their niche and they kind of defend it. They have their little, they occupy a certain ground, many of which is analytic philosophy. Mm-hmm. And in any case, with Deleuze, I think that what's, what always surprised me getting into him more was how English departments, comparative literature departments, how little they actually gave him much leeway besides maybe like some of the cinema books because in like in some of the like film departments the cinema books have a certain leeway but you know Deleuze and Guattari they write so much about literature that it's kind of surprising Hmm. um, that that he's that he's left out and I guess I mean I suppose it's because he doesn't create a method method if right, you want to yeah. call it that like Derrida does right, or something yeah. like this applying Deleuze to literature is perhaps not as straightforward yeah right. Derrida has the hook of deconstruction it's mm-hmm. I mean it's 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 an ultimately complex you know matrix but it has a word to describe it whereas Deleuze there's no real word to describe Deleuzean philosophy other than Deleuzean or you know maybe <laughs> transcendental empiricism or 
perhaps constructivism. Yeah, um, transcendental empiricism doesn't sound like it fits in a in a literature course. No, right? you know, no, and yeah. uh, but again, like I do think that I do think that Deleuze and Guattari both have their own in their solo works and together they have unique approaches to literature, and and so it, it is nice to see. You know, as you pointed out, since 2000, I think in, in your chapter on Deleuze, you, your first footnote is like, since 2009, there's been this kind of burgeoning of interest in Deleuze. Obviously, he hasn't surpassed Foucault, but in some sense, I think that you pointed out he's uh, surpassed Derrida. And it was just quantity of uh, citations, citations. On, on Google Scholar. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting to think about. But it, I would still be curious to know. If there is a standard Deleuzian approach to literature, with that, like like Derrida got got that treatment, I I don't know if that's ever going to happen. You know what I mean? I think Deleuze yeah. is perhaps always going to be this liminal figure. I think that's the way he he wanted it. I mean, I think you know so much of that's one thing about Derrida's work is that it's it's remarkably consistent, even though it's incredibly difficult and obscure. He's always doing deconstruction, whereas with you know Deleuze, both with and without. Guattari, he uses this complex system of concepts mm-hmm. and terms, and then in the very next book, he'll discard most of them <laughs> and create a whole new set of... Con- and, you know, I think once you read a lot of his work, you, you realize that he's getting at the same things in different ways, with right. different language, and the different words open up, you know, different aspects of these intertwined, this intertwined system of concepts, but but it's not really... He doesn't make it easy to access. <laughs> no, he doesn't. You mentioned uh, speculative empiricism. I thought that was a, maybe even a better way to characterize Deleuze. If you were going to you know, slap a label on him I, that you mentioned, I thought that was really good. I kind of resonated with that a little bit. But I wanted to just briefly mention too, like also another person coming from at the stuff through the lens or through the pathway of, of English during my undergrad, You know, I, I double majored in sociology and English and as part of the English degree, like everyone had to take this theory course. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to my professor's office hours and being like, you know, I'm super interested in this. What should I read? And like the two books that she mentioned were A Thousand Plateaus and Simulacra and Simulation. Uh, no shit, really? Yeah. That, that's not the first Deleuze book with a commentary <laughs> that I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember but it's- I remember trying to read it at the time and I was like, what mm. the fuck? Is yeah, it's, but it's but it's a lot of fun though, right? I mean oh, that, of course, yeah. That that would be a lot of fun instead of uh she gave you like the Herculean task, but yeah. simu- simulation and simulacra you could you could get yeah, into a lot more bit. approachable. Mm. You know, it was interesting what really random coincidence too, like this person had literally just replaced Todd McGowan at my school. The year before Todd McGowan was basically teaching this class. So that was like a wild, just missed, missed connection or something. I feel lucky in a way that I started reading Deleuze on the late side because I had already read a lot of his, his biggest influences. You know, I'd, I'd already read a lot of, he doesn't really talk that much about William James, but he praises him really highly. Mm-hmm. Um, I had already, you know, read a lot of Bergson, Whitehead. Similarly, he praises him very highly, but actually, you know, one point in, in difference and repetition. And then also he writes that one chapter on him in the fold, but also but Nietzsche. So it's like, I don't know if it would have been, I know a lot of younger sort of budding scholars are reading Deleuze before they're reading any other philosophy. And yeah. I, I, I think that, I, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter 
how you get into philosophy as long as you get into it, because you'll read a lot of things eventually. But for me, I think that it would have been a lot more difficult to understand what the hell he was talking about if I hadn't, you know, already read all of these other these other philosophers and spent a couple of decades trying to understand Hegel and <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a lifelong yeah. project, right? Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, before uh, before Cooper and I started our series on anti Oedipus, we spent a few months diving into some Freud texts and like the Rat Man, the Wolf Man, Schraber the case. Text- the Schraber case, which I think is a great way to start with at least the first chapter of Anti-Oedipus, is having some background of who the fuck Schraber was and why they're talking about a solar anus. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and the, the narcissism text, a couple other texts too, uh, like on negation and repression, repression, on the vicissitudes of the drives. That I thought was good material to go over for us to because I'm trying to get Cooper deeper into Deleuze. This is like my project is like, yeah, I've already Guattari pilled him. So I'm trying to like progressively <laughs> Deleuze pill him. And, um, and so, you know, I think A Thousand Plateaus is obviously one of those texts that can never be mastered if any text can, but it's one of those texts that's just really supposed to be enjoyed as they say, like a, like a record, you know, you, you start with the, with the plateaus that you kind of enjoy and eventually mm-hmm. you, you just sort of sprawl out as you will. But, you know, we, we've also, I, I know that one text he's, he's always wanted to discuss is the text on the fold, mm-hmm. you know, cause Coop has his own interest in Leibniz and monads. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I put in the notes too, there's, I, I really enjoyed the chapter on Leibniz and also Hegel quite a bit. Well, I was going to mention you just to go back to the points on, about, uh, Deleuze in literature. I don't know if you've read um, Proust and Signs, mm. but a remarkable yeah. like, work of literary criticism. It's absolutely brilliant. I thought, you know, it's, and it's, I mean, he's doing, I mean, he's doing philosophy in relation yes. to Proust. And I think he's showing how Proust is philosophical. One thing that I, I love about that, I mean, there are a lot of things to love about that book. It's the, it's the, the search, right? That's sort of like the overriding mm-hmm. theme of that work. But one small thing that I love about that work is that he he affirmatively uses the word archetype in that book. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You, you, point, you point this out. You point this out that mm-hmm. that's something that I had because Cooper and I, we, we've Cooper, was that the first Deleuze book that you like fully read? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you were struck by it and its style. And obviously it was translated by a it yeah, was translated poet, by Richard apparently. Howard, who just passed, I believe, mm this year but he was in his 90s and i i reached out to him last year just to kind of because i saw he was still alive i was like man you know whether or not he responds i at least want to reach out to to someone who inspired me you know as a as a translator and and he was very cordial and and sent me a a nice little note back but you know that that was another thing i think that makes that text special is not to disparage the other delos translators but having kind of a it's the perfect translator for a book on Proust, you know, someone who's translated in that milieu, other literate. I'm not sure if he's translated Proust before, but he translated kind of people in that vein, right? A literary translator. I'm just a poor, like philosophical translator who's trying to get by. You know, he has uh, some panache to it, but, but I did want to, I did want to bring that up that I had completely forgotten that he uh, mentions archetypes in a positive way in Proust and Science until you had you had brought that up. And so yeah. but he doesn't name Jung in that book, does he? I don't think he does in that in that book. I mean yeah. that's another thing that really struck me as I was reading Deleuze's books is that he refers to Jung 
quite mm-hmm. a bit, either by name in, in Difference and Repetition or A Thousand Plateaus or mm-hmm. Anti-Oedipus, mm-hmm. um, sometimes, sometimes critically, but probably more often in, a, in an affirmative, complimentary way. And then he refers to his concepts. I, so I think it's, I think I counted at one point, it was like, I think it's nine or 10 texts where he's either, he's either referring to Jung by name or to the archetypes mm-hmm. or, you know, he, he uses the word synchronicity in, yep. Um, yep. in uh, the logic of sense. And then there are some other things that are more ambiguous, like um, the word individuation, which I think he largely derived from Simondon. Yeah. Um, but he perhaps derived it from Jung. Um, that's that's then, possible. Yeah, uh, because because we know that it was into Jung as well. And then there there's even uh, there's even the possibility that both the concepts of the rhizome and transversality, the transversal were derived from Jung as well. Which is it's 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 pretty you know we could talk about that evidence, but it's it's I mean to me it's remarkable how many and the, the self with a capital S. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable how many of Jung's concepts have permeated uh, Deleuze's work, both with and without Guattari, and how, honestly, how little that's talked about by, by scholars of these, these philosophers. This is really good because, well, first of all, I didn't even know about synchronicity being a Jungian concept. So you brought that to my attention, which, mm. which, is, which is really great. But what is interesting too, you obviously cite, quote, the part he has where he finds Jung to have certain, I'm not even going to be able to paraphrase this well, but he, mm-hmm. he sees Jung as having certain advances or advantages over Freud. But there's also that anecdote that he goes over in the Abbasadere, which we've mm-hmm. recently watched for our talk with Charles Saval, but he mentions it in A Thousand Plateaus too, where you know, Jung comes comes to Freud with this dream about an ossuary, right? About mm-hmm. this, this this whole this whole monument of bones, and Freud wants to reduce it to to a kind of a unity, to a bone, right? To a single to, death wish, <laughs> a single a single thing, and it's uh-huh. and and that for them, you know, Deleuze I think says it even better in Abyssinia, but in A Thousand Plateaus, they're like they're using this as evidence about the one or several wolves that like. But Freud even knows this, that wolves come in a pack, and yet that it's a multiplicity. And, yeah. and yet he persists in his moves. I think Cooper and I talked about this a little bit with like the the Wolfman, for example, how he reduces the the wolves in the in the primal scene of the Wolfman to to the father or to the father and the mother, right? Which is its own kind of it's not the best multiplicity, right, for the right. pack if you're reducing yeah. it to just the Oedipal uh yeah, yeah. exactly the tri- the Oedipal triangulation. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring up that figure of the the wolf pack because that's the central figure that Catherine Malibu discusses mm-hmm. in her her essay Who's Afraid of Hegelian Wolves? Right. Which of course, you know, Catherine Malibu was a collaborator with Derrida, you know, very well-regarded French philosopher, and she uses this figure that's actually derived from Jung to critique Deleuze's critique of Hegel. So it's it's just it's just like the, you know it's it's these footnotes within footnotes within. Footnotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious that you mentioned that uh, <laughs> in that in that way. Just because I'm a, a Dune addict and I've like of a browbeaten Taylor to death with with Dune references lately. (laughs) If I may, I thought that kind of opened up what I found really kind of compelling in your discussion of Leibniz or Leibniz in particular was Mm -hmm. the way that the little, the, um, the little monads are sort of analogous to the same thing, like a multiplicity. It's like these little 
series of points. I forget the way you described it. I'd have to, let me hmm. see if I can find that actual. <laughs> what, divine technical. machines? And... Well, no. Okay. So it's here. You say Leibniz, like Spinoza, came to associate mm. with the imminent active power of the, the conatus, yeah. the inclinational striving for which each physical body is constituted in an, an aggregate of points, both containing and flowing from a metaphysical formal cause. But mm-hmm. I thought that aggregate of points pointed towards like a, a the similar thing, like a multiplicity yes. sort right. of thing. And I and, really was yeah. connecting this to not only in, with that regard, but I thought this was really compelling in terms of you know, and I, I can't quite square the circle, if you will, but <laughs> as relate as it relates to like uh, partial objects on the body without organs, mm-hmm. or like zones of intensity on the body without organs, or even like these desiring machines or something like that. I don't know. Just really conjures up a lot of very cosmic images that I just. This is the kind of stuff that I love. So I don't know if you have anything to build, or either of you have anything to say on that note. But that's something that just kind of gripped my imagination. This is one aspect of why I'm like. I'm super excited to delve into Leibniz a bit further. So I think it's um, Simon Duffy in his book, um, Deleuze and the History of Mathematics. Mm-hmm. That's where I first saw it, that the monads are the metaphysical correlate of the infinitesimal of the right. calculus, which is you know kind of central to Deleuze's metaphysics, especially in, in Difference and Repetition. So, uh, you know, that's sort of like a thread that runs throughout the book. And, uh, you know, I'm not a mathematician, so I'm not an expert in the calculus. It's more more like the history of of the development of of that mathematical instrument, and specifically the difference between the Newtonian version of the calculus and the Leibnizian version of the calculus. I find that fascinating. And I think you're right, Cooper, that that it sort of permeates you know, Deleuze's work in these late 60s texts, and then also goes into his work with Guattari in terms of, I mean, you know, I was just thinking earlier about how at various points, they equate, so difference is is obviously at least partially derived from the differential calculus. And at one point, they equate they equate difference with the body without organs, which they equate with the Tao. These are from all different texts from different yeah. decades, you know, and with Deleuze, with Spinoza's imminence. And so it's like, you know, they're getting they're they're getting at from a, all these different angles. They're trying to get at something that always recedes as you approach it, which is describable as the infinitesimal that you can never you can never attain that that thing itself. It's an always receding horizon of of indiscernibility. Yeah, yeah, that that's, that's yeah. It's like uh, Gödel's theorem too, which is what this reminded me too of. Because you can kind of like keep having that distance perpetually. Reminded me of the set, the way that you were talking about the segments of the curve of the line. Right, there's like in, if the infinite segments, like it approaches. It's between zero and one, or I, you know, I can't remember the specifics. <laughs> if you, between, you guys feel free to correct me there. More than zero, less than any real number. Yeah, yeah. Any, exactly. any positive, any positive. Any positive. Yeah, yeah. It's this paradoxical quantity that, I mean, it's, Simon Duffy also has this really great concept of, well, it's not his concept, but it's, I learned, I learned mm-hmm. about it from him. It's of the sing categorimatic. It's for any problem, any particular question, the solution is always adequate to answering that question. So it's only it's only infinitesimal. And we're talking about, you know, summing together an infinite series to mm-hmm. to to construct a line or a curve in the calculus. But so it's it's on one plane of description that this is the sin categorimatic quality of the infinitesimal version of the calculus. But on one plane of description, 
it's always a finite quantity that's just small enough to give you an exact answer mm-hmm. for whatever scale that you need. But in its abstract ontological definition, it's this always receding, it's always receding towards the infinitely small. So in that way, it, it kind of integrates continuity and discontinuity because you have the, the finite the, the finite answer, but also the infinitesimal, infinitesimally receding singularity. Yeah, I, I like this use of the sin categorimatic because it what it really highlights is the fact that outside of the differential relation in which it is part of the solution, it doesn't necessarily have meaning, right? It's kind of how Deleuze uh, himself talks about what the he talks about reciprocal determination in terms of the differential equation outside of the relation between d dy and dx those values don't really mean anything but in that relation there is this form of determination that he's trying to to seek as as part of the his whole elaboration right of whether it be difference or whether it be the virtual, et cetera, right? You know, the realm of the ideas, if you will. So I, I did I did like all of all of this. And and it feels like just thinking about your subtitle, you would need a, a chapter on on Leibniz in order to to give to give more concreteness to this question of difference and in, in integration, which mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to ask more about that specifically. I know we, we are jumping around a little bit, but this is fun. Was that subtitle meant as, or not subtitle, was that's the main title. Was that meant to echo uh, Deleuze's difference of repetition or was that just a, a coincidence? No, it was absolutely meant to, to echo okay. a different, <laughs> difference in repetition. Uh, so the initial title that I had was, was integration because the seed for the book was that I wanted to look at this concept of integration in all of these theorists who explicitly mm-hmm. talk about it from, you know, William James Bergson, Whitehead, Jung, Deleuze, mm-hmm. James Hillman, who's a, my favorite Jungian, who's now passed, and, um, and Isabel Sangers, who's probably mm-hmm. my favorite, uh, you know, living philosopher. Um, and they all, they all discuss this, this concept of integration. And as I got deeper into these texts, I was like, well, you can't really talk about integration without differentiation. And, you know, even in, in difference and repetition, Deleuze has these words of one is different differentiation with a T and yes. one's differentiation with a C. Yes. And at, at one point, or I think a couple of times, he says that differentiation is synonymous with integration and it's, it's actualization. It's um, right. It's in dramatization. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's in the drama different <laughs> Yeah, Right. That's a, some, it's less of a spoken word. It's more of something that can only be seen. I We brought this up with uh, John, yeah, John, John Rofe last <laughs> week, oh, yeah. or, or not last week, two weeks ago, but because I was, I was, well, trying episodes to, out now. I was trying to point out how different seation with the TC was was kind of Deleuze's uh, difference, right? It, that you can't really hear it. You have to, it, it can only be written. It's the difference that can't be spoken, if you will, right? You know, I was like, why is he using this other slightly different version of differentiation that he's, which is differentiation, which he's rendering synonymous with integration. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion that I came to is that he wanted to, through that word, he wanted to really emphasize always intimate intertwining of integration and differentiation that they can't they can't be separated and that actually the process of the process of differentiation is integral to the process of of integration yeah and and i think that it's nice that it it helps to shed light on you know with differentiation with the c he's thinking of 
for example, one of the main examples is like the biological, but he's thinking, as you said, of actualization, whereas with differentiation with the T, it's more on the side of ideas, events of this more kind of purely mathematical, problematic side. And to have two words for both, what's nice is, and you kind of mentioned this in passing, and I say in passing, but you, you do mention this, is this is why Deleuze doesn't feel that integration and differentiation are opposites. Like Newton might think they're just reversible sides. But right. For, yeah, but, yeah. For De, but for Deleuze, that doesn't really make sense to think that actualization would just be a kind of opposite of whether he would call it. I'm trying to think of the word. I don't think it's perplication, but he has he has different words, right? Because there's explication, which would be kind of more on the side of qualities and actualization, mm-hmm. but then there's complication, perplication. We won't get into all that, right? Yeah. Which, which he which he kind of quickly abandons. But for the right. most part, <laughs> but he does say like explicitly in the text that um, that integration and differentiation can't be thought of as as just reversible sides or opposites. That they each play a kind of asymmetrical yet obviously intimately related sides of the process. Right. Going back to what you were saying about Derrida, it's, it's, it's similar to Derrida and to France, mm-hmm. bringing in, I know, I know you guys uh, interviewed Vern Sisney. I think his, his book, um, Deleuze and Derrida, is, is wonderful. And mm-hmm. it's been really you know, influential on my thinking about the relation between those two theorists. Yes. Not to skip over his entire book and get to the, the conclusion, but the conclusion that he comes to is that they both propound a, a differential ontology, as you were saying, is this idea that there's no ultimate transcendent fixed objective grounding that's, you know, whether the platonic forms or the, the you know, an ultimate ground of materiality that the world is, is sort of a degeneration of or a, is derived from. Rather, it's this univocity and pure eminence, which is that there's no outside there's no outside of the world and that the, we, our consciousness and the world we experience is a limited construction from mm-hmm. a more expansive, univocal, imminent manifold and that our project is to expand. Anyway, so I'm, I'm going off in a different direction. <laughs> no, 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 this is good. This, I mean, this, going. <laughs> I, I, I would say that, uh, that you summarize this well in your chapter on Derrida, your opening chapter after the introduction, which is to... As you point out, Derrida is kind of more on the side of Hegel. You already kind of intimated that with with Malibu's pushback against Deleuze. And insofar as he's more on the side of Hegel, he privileges, I don't even know if that's the right word, but he tarries with the negative, right? He tarries, yeah. It's a, there's a, there's a, an end note in uh, writing indifference that uh, actually uh, I came to my attention first through Verne's book, Mm -hmm. where he says that deconstruction enacts a negativity so negative that it can't be considered negative any longer it's a negativity (laughs) beyond the negative so basically what Vern says is that it's it's a that Derrida propounds a a negative differential ontology and Deleuze propounds a positive differential ontology that's not just effectively negative and positive but it is effectively negative and positive I mean Derrida the affects that he dwells with are terror shame mourning loss and we love him for that <laughs> because he cleared the space in which in which a novel positive mode could emerge. And so these these terms, I think I don't remember if Vern specifically talks about Schelling, but these words, as you guys probably know, are, are from Schelling's late lecture on the grounding of positive philosophy, where it's the, the negative is the rational, analytic, 
mode of thought that <coughs> tends to reduce entities of whatever kind down into their constituent elements in order to understand them. So, you know, he thinks that Aristotle was primarily negative, whereas mm-hmm. Plato was, pre- and then, you know, and that Kant was the peak of the, the negative philosophy. And then, you know, of course, Schelling himself was the, <laughs> according to Schelling, was the emergence of a novel positive philosophy. But, and, and positive philosophy is, you know, it posits yes. novel metaphysical entities, which, you know, brings us around to, you know, so there are those two, um, those two Berlin lectures that he gave in his 60s in the 1840s, after he he took over Hegel's old old (laughs) professorship after Hegel died in in Berlin. And there's the one is the grounding of positive philosophy. And the other one is the introduction to the philosophy of mythology, where he correlates, he uses this word potency, and he correlates these potencies, which are, you know, I think this is what Deleuze says in uh, Difference and Repetition that Schelling's greatest contribution is the the theory of powers, which of course is the you know the same word as potency. They yeah Latin and it's it's potens power potential in potentia and powers. It's the it's the god. So he and he he's discussing the gods of Hellenic polytheism in this this late this late lecture. And so I th- I think that's really interesting because you know. Another thing, I'm, I feel like I'm lecturing now, so no, no, no. Feel free to jump in. <laughs> I will jump in, but you keep okay. going. But you know, another thing that isn't mentioned very often about Deleuze is that he talks about the gods of Hellenic polytheism quite a bit in many texts from various decades, from you know what is grounding and and uh, you know empiricism and subjectivity. Wait, yeah. no, no, not in empiricism. Anyway, no. What is grounding for sure? That's that's yeah. That's he the does do it around mythology and some of the the collected essays, which are from different decades. We see, uh, right. you know, I think in Desert Islands there was a text that you you cited that I took a look at yesterday, or it could be Two Regimes of Madness. I always for I always mix them up because they're just kind of very. Uh, I want to get to Shelling in a second. You did anticipate my question, which is obviously right in front of you. When I first read it, read that because this this appears in the introduction. And I was thinking, I, I almost did like a Derridian move when you were writing about Derrida, where I thought I, I'd caught like this parapraxis of slippage where you say, uh, and I have the quotes here, Hegel is affectively beyond Derrida. Derrida is affectively prohibited, prohibited from entering this promised novel domain, which you say he helps to clear away the space for, which is the sort of negative movement beyond negativity, right? That he helps to clear this space for, as you said, for this positing or this positive uh, side. And then when I got into the Derrida chapter, I noticed that, in fact, you did mean affectively instead of effectively. And so I, I guess that was my question. You kind of answered a little bit, but how much in your view, if Derrida is the one example that I brought up, but for all of these thinkers, how much did the affective side of their thinking influence your discussions of them in relation, just distinct from from the sort of more purely theoretical, if we can make that break, because I do think that that it's it's a purely abstract move to do, but but there is something to that that I was a little bit sensitive to. It's just the the way in which you were you were you yourself were sensitive to this affective dimension of the thinkers under consideration. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, there's this <laughs> tendency in philosophy to want to think in this purely 
disembodied sort of conceptual, rational way. Right. And I think one of the, from Spinoza to Nietzsche to Bergson to James and Whitehead, I, I think these are all, and then of course, Deleuze, these are all theorists who are, and Derrida, of course, are bringing, bringing affect, the felt reality of bodily experience intimately back into the practice of philosophy because this is one of the I think one of the primary concerns of my book is that philosophers I think generally are motivated to spend decades of their lives pursuing these you know profound and paradoxical problematic questions for not just out of sort of sort of uh, disembodied curiosity or something like that they're impelled to pursue these problematic questions because they're affective problems for them. And so I talk about this in relation to, in relation to, well, Nietzsche, I think is probably the the most direct and clearest example that he, he discussed ressentiment and he just so clearly experienced that himself. Like for instance, in, um, in that the untimely meditation on David Strauss, which is, I think, I think it's the first, the first thing he published after, after the birth of tragedy. And it's just this this fugue of of hate reading yes. against Strauss's book, and it's like you only have to sort of just dig a little bit beneath the surface. And I mean, that's one interesting thing is that there's this prohibition against against what they call psychologizing in analytic yes. philosophy, right? And I think that that's absurd. And and somebody who's you know really pushed against that is you guys probably know him as David Hoyinsky. Um, you know, he has a he does yeah. work on on bringing bringing biography back into to the picture. And I think that. You can't really understand what someone is doing philosophically without knowing, and I think this is more true in some cases than others, but without understanding what's going on with their biography. And, and I mean, for, you know, Nietzsche, I think, is probably the most biographical of philosophers. So he spends this whole book, or this whole untimely meditation, railing against David Strauss, who, it just so happens, his book came out the same year as Nietzsche's. <laughs> <laughs> and was very a very popular book. Yes, right? was very popular. Yeah, right, was, was, was timely. It was timely. Yeah, it was timely. Sense. Exactly. And whereas Nietzsche's was uh, sort of widely panned by philologists and academics, and didn't sell very well, and kind of ruined his academic reputation and made him yes basically you know before the book came out, hundreds of students were coming to his public lectures, and then after the book came out, he was his classes were being canceled because he wasn't uh, doing philology in that in that practice academic sense right exactly but he spends this whole this whole work just railing against uh strauss who strauss's book basically critiques it critiques the miraculous in christianity while still affirming a sort of humanist christian ethics nietzsche even i think said later that he was that he was a little jealous of strauss for having you know, had the, the courage to critique Christianity, which Nietzsche, of course, would do, be the, yes. become the preeminent crit- yes. critic of Christianity later, but he didn't do it in, in uh, The Birth of Tragedy. So, you know, it's, I think, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche was able to see so deeply into Resentiment because he experienced that affect so completely himself. Derrida, you know, he talks about his biography as, you know, as a French-Jewish person growing up in Algeria, which is yep, yep. predominantly <laughs> Arab country. This is very, and right when he was growing up, there were all these political upheavals and, yep. and his parents, they lost their, I think they lost their, their home and their citizenship or something along those lines. And he moved to, moved to Paris. And so it's, you know, his work is permeated by this sense of loss and mourning and closure. Right. 
And he says at one point, uh, this is in, I got this from Peter Salmon's wonderful biography of Derrida, an event perhaps. He says at one point, it does my biography explain everything? No, of course not. But could I, could I explain anything without it? No, definitely not. So it's like, you know, and so this becomes a central aspect of my sort of loving critique of Deleuze's critique of Hegel, which right. we could talk about if we wanted to go into that. <laughs> no, yes, of course, of course. I think this is a good way to, to set up before we do, maybe we could say a word about the shelling passage that you just mentioned from Difference of yeah. Repetition, because that's where he, and I'm not sure if he's drawing from shelling or not, but he says, this is where he describes anger and love as powers of the idea. And, uh, and anger is like part of the process of selection, right? With the, the eternal return. So I just thought that that was interesting too, that even within that, that little, almost like an aside, right? Because he's, he has this aside. He's like, it almost feels like this footnote that he's inserted into the text. Cause there are moments in different repetition that feel like that, like with, uh, his notes on being in time, it feels like, uh, like a supervisor was like, Hey, you, you might want to say something about Heidegger. <laughs> uh, but he has, he has this society he even puts it in parentheses about mm-hmm. how unfair Hegel's black night in which all cows are black. Right. Deleuze almost like feels effectively for Schelling. He, uh, what's the, I interrupted you to not no, no, no. the word. I was trying to. to well, yeah, he has a sympathy for him. Yeah, yeah, he identifies with him. And this is where he's he's kind of saying Schelling's, which you kind of already mentioned this, but you know, we can see this elsewhere in the text where Deleuze is going into this notion of a of a grounding ungrounding, which is definitely has a Schellingian type of uh, a flavor to it. But this notion of anger and love as powers of the idea, I think mm. it makes it kind of brings back to the fore that even for Deleuze, there are these uh, these sort of terrible affects that are that aren't excluded, right, mm. from something that that might seem because for him, ideas are not just in our head, right? They are, uh, and in the best way he describes this is when he goes into um, the idea of society and the economic and Althusser's reading of of Marx. Anyway, I guess that to lead into Deleuze and Hegel, I was interested in the way in which, and you've already kind of anticipated this a little bit, but the way in which Schelling for you helps to give us an indication of where Deleuze is going to go and helps helps to kind of perhaps pave a path for one of the, the preliminary pushbacks against against Hegel. So I guess that, that would be my question for you is the, the figure of Schelling, uh-huh. specifically with, I guess, the mythical part, because that yeah. that that's a part of your subtitle, right? This this notion of a mythical dialectic. So perhaps mm-hmm. you could say a few words about about this side of it. You've already again sort of anticipated this, but say maybe say a little bit more about this mythical dialectic and what it means for you. So that phrase is is taken from a passage in Difference and Repetition. He doesn't use that exact phrase of mythical okay. dialectic. It's the section where he's talking about Plato and I think it's the the repetitious circulation of souls in the Republic. Yes. And basically what he's saying is that he's sort of defending Plato against Aristotle's critique of Plato that he merely is merely 
sort of goes back to a, a mythical mode of thought. What's the word right. I'm looking for? Reverts, reverts to a mythical mode of thought. Like in the um, Phaedrus, for example. Right, in the right. Phaedrus, yeah. Or in the um, Republic, right? The, mm. the, al- the use of allegory and myth uh, right, in order right. to explain what is not rational. Anyway, go, go ahead. Right, yeah. So he's talking about how there's, it's the dialectical method of division, which is just essentially, as you know, it's just, okay, so we have this one entity, now let's divide it up into two entities. This is, this, this Socrates is just going on and on. It's, I don't remember which, which dialogue this is in, but it's just, now let's divide one of those up into another one. And it's just this constant division into. The sophist, this, right? That, that's, I think that. Is, it, is that the sophist? Yeah. I think I, that's I one of the, exactly. that's one of the, that's one of the texts that he, he yeah. kind of does this, but yeah. I'd have to look back. They all kind of blend together for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, I mean, so then Deleuze says that that it's this unexpected thing where that Plato does, where he um, it's the unexpected introduction of myth into the dialectic, and it integrates myth into the dialectic. Interesting. Okay, gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. And gotcha. so, and so, it's you know, I think a lot of people when they think of Deleuze, they think, oh, Deleuze is rejecting dialectic altogether. And I don't think that's the case because, you know, I think people tend to often tend to conflate dialectic in general with the Hegelian dialectic. And of course right. he is rejecting the Hegelian dialectic. Yes. But what he's saying is, is he's advocating a deeper dialectic that's a, a dialectic of existence. And, you know, you mentioned Schelling's theory of powers, and I'm not sure if it's in that section that you were talking about or if it's somewhere else in the text, but he specifically refers to the God of love and the God of anger. And he's talking about, he's talking about a series of polytheistic potencies. Yes. Um, And and this is, I'm pretty sure he doesn't um, explicitly refer to um, Schelling's series of lectures on the philosophy of mythology, but I'm pretty sure that must be what he's referring to because this is exactly what Schelling talks about in, you know, historical critical introduction to the philosophy of mythology, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's, you know, he's talking about this, this series of gods from Uranus to Kronos to Zeus. And, you know, another thing that he talks about is how one of the main things he does in that series of lectures is he goes through and he looks at all of the explanations for mythology that have been propounded for the last several millennia and sort of crosses them all off the list. And he says, okay, they're actually, they're just poetic inventions, the, uh-huh. the, the gods of, and heroes of mythology. They are just explanations for natural phenomena. They are real humans who were elevated to a divine status. Right. And he goes through a bunch of things like this. And the conclusion that he ultimately comes to is that there's truth in all of those explanations, but the truth of the gods of polytheism is that their ontological status is ambiguous, that they're Mm -hmm. not, they're not these divine beings that reside in some fixed transcendent domain, but they're also not just products of human invention, that they're, they are constitutive of consciousness. Right. Okay. Interesting. And they're actually, the gods are correlated with, Spinoza correlates the affects and the formal causes. And so these are, this is a, a sort of a deeper register of, of formal causation, you know, than the Platonic, the Platonic transcendent forms, which have a greater reality and, and everything is just a attenuated degeneration of those forms. They're transcendental, virtual, formal potentialities that infinitely recede as they're approached, like the infinitesimal of the calculus, like monads, they're dynamisms, um, which oh. is another word that with Deleuze, I mean, which of course is just, is just the translation of potency. It's dynamis in Greek and, right. and potens in Latin. So 
you know, and then of course that brings us to the eternal return and yes, to, will and, to power. Yeah. And I didn't really understand the will to power. And I, you know, who knows if I still, if I, who understands the will to power, but I right. think the thing that really opened up, opened up the will to power for me is that Deleuze says it's not a will to the lowest expression of the will to power is the will to dominate others. Yes, yes. And that's that's the error that the Nazis made. They took just the most facile, the most reductive interpretation of Nietzsche and ran with it. But what I think he really means is the will to powers, the will to potencies. To so the nth power, right? Yeah, to the nth power. And But it's taking all of these affectively correlated potencies, which in Spinoza, the affects are the will. The affects constitute the will. You know, I think that's why... That's why Spinoza says he rejects the idea of free will, which I don't think means he rejects the idea of choice. I think he's just saying that that we can't control the affective complexes that that are always coursing through us and that are always motivating our conceptual creations as, as thinkers. But what we can do is we can choose at which register to express to express these affective potencies that constitute our will. So I use the example of, of Deleuze, because in Dasse's, Francois Dasse's biography, he talks a lot about Deleuze's childhood. And it's pretty clear that he had an Oedipal relationship with his father, who was an, uh, an anti-Semite, knows of art sort of very conservative, and which is diametrically opposed to Deleuze's, Deleuze's very extremely progressive political views. And also his parents... Um, you know, his, his, he had an older brother. You guys, I mean, I'm probably telling you guys. No, no, no. I, I, you already know. But, <laughs> but this is this is good for the for the listener. Uh, you can add this too. During World War II, during the Nazi occupation in Paris, oh. Gilles and his brother Georges were sent off to school to get away from the Nazis. These two, they were very close. I think that, you know, it was kind of like a boarding school sort of situation. And they were very close. And then his brother graduated and went off to fight the Nazis and was killed heroically fighting the Nazis. He becomes a hero, right? Right, he becomes a hero. And so based on quotes from various friends of Deleuze's, uh, it, it sounds like Deleuze's parents sort of always resented him for not being the one who died because he was sort of like the mediocre son while yeah. while while George was the hero. I mean, can you imagine thinking, in my opinion, possibly the most brilliant philosopher of all time well, he, the mediocre he, child? I mean, <laughs> even as late as the, the Abbasadere, which wasn't supposed to air until after his death, even if it even if a little bit of it did air during his lifetime or at the end of his life. But even at that point, he doesn't mention his brother very much, but he does mention being a mediocre student until until later on and he does mention his father right as being i mean pretty blatantly he's just like being an anti-semite as as you pointed out and so yeah there is that edible conflict the sibling rivalry and And he also he also compliments his father he says his father was you know very benevolent very good so he seems kind of ambivalent in his relation in his relation to his father yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and and obviously, I think his brother's death was also traumatizing for him. And they and Dasse uh-huh. says that that was that was quickly repressed. This is part of the double-edged sword of the the biography that I think, and you even kind of bring out some of this tension where Das does have a tendency sometimes to to psychologize a little a little much, even if, as you say, and as Derrida says, the biography should be dealt with. One of the more blatant examples, and Janosko kind of really. Uh, takes Dawes down for this, which is where he kind of recounts Guattari's 
formative moment. He's, you know, he's like nine years old playing at, at the foot of his, his grandfather who, you know, has a heart attack and passes away immediately. And how this was like this formative event that we can see back to, you know, some Oedipal stuff. And I think that Janosko is merely saying like, is saying more that it's not necessarily something that shouldn't be discussed. It's the emphasis with which he Doc seems to downplay, you know, the next 25 years of, of learning and, and study that Guattari has under, right. I mean, yeah. cause you could do the same thing with Guattari's relationship to Lacan and, and, and do Absolutely. a whole edible yes. thing too there. But I think all of this is definitely important. And there was a, there was one, point i wanted to make oh sorry if you want to if you want to jump yeah, in let, that's fine. let me just let me just in relation to that so i think i think you know it's like you don't want to be biographically reductive yes but which is something that, that salmon talks about in relation to Derrida. one of the my primary arguments in relation to a, a lot of these philosophers is that these affective complexes their philosophy can't be reduced to these these affective complexes, but rather, or to these biographical events that caused these biographical complexes. Right. And this goes this goes back to Freud. I mean, Freud eventually moved away from the idea that that these psychological complexes were caused by literal traumatic yes. events, and he yes. moved toward a more ambiguous mode that I think was taken up really profoundly by Jung. That these are ultimately archetypal complexes uh-huh. or their complexes of affective potencies. And I'm, I'm talking about sort of Jung's latest uh-huh. conception of the archetypes, not his earlier conception where they were more psychological or merely psychological. But I think there's, there's a lot of resonance with Schelling's discussion of the ambiguous ontological status of, of the gods, that it's not that the biography is the ultimate cause of these affective complexes, which are then expressed through philosophy, it's that it's that there's a dark or obscure precursor that's a, that's a singularity. Deleuze and Guattari, I think, talk about this in relation to Nietzsche. They mention how the events of was it Nietzsche or Kafka? Maybe it was Kafka. Anyway, the events of a philosopher's or it must have been Nietzsche. Anyway, the events of a philosopher's life fit the tone of their philosophy, but it's not that necessarily that the events cause the philosophy. It's that they all resonate yes. in a non-local, non-linear series leading back infinitesimally toward a an obscure precursor. Right, right. And, you know, I think, you know, I think my, in my opinion, Deleuze was more influenced by Jung than he let on. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, understandably there was a there was a bit of a backlash against against Jung because of his interest in occult phenomena, which right. you know was sort of precluded, especially, you know, in the in the 20th century, precluded one from being taken seriously as an academic. Though I I think that's that's changing. I mean, you know, I think if you look at, you know, Spinoza was interested in, you know, James Bergson right. Even Deleuze, they were all interested in occult, various occult phenomena. Even Freud's later writings, right? He has right. Uh, he has the the little essay on um, on telepathy. Even he delves into the uh, to the unconscious a little bit. And I, I thought it was interesting that that you brought to light how 
when Deleuze is skeptical of the archetypes, he's probably thinking of the more mainstream version, which is Jung's earlier version of the archetypes, which, as you said, Mm -hmm. might be more static, might be more psychological. But I think that perhaps you could say a word about this later version, because it does remind me a little bit about how as I said, ideas are not merely psychological or in the head. They have they have forms of actualization. They have they have a, a relationship with that, and so they are they're they're also you know they're what does he call them complexes of coexistence, and not merely right, right. just ideas that you know they don't just occupy a space in the brain or something reductive like that. So perhaps that's kind of how I was thinking a little bit deeper about Jung's latest version of the archetype and rethinking their. Uh, their complex of coexistence, if you will. Do you want to say a word about about that later version that you draw on in your chapter on you? Mysterium Conjunctionis is his last last full length monograph, which I think was published in the in fifty six, maybe nineteen fifty six, when he was in his eighties. And in that book, you know, I mean, Jung is an extremely prolific and extremely generative pioneer, mm. and he he went through a period after his expulsion from psychoanalysis in the teens, after his break with Freud, where he underwent basically a schizoanalysis. He says that he he did a schizophrenia. So he sort of semi-intentionally schizophrenized, and that resulted in the Red Book. Jung, ultimately, he always asserted that he was a physician and not a philosopher, though I think he became increasingly philosophical over the course of his, over the course of his work. The primary philosopher that he would refer to, I think he would always sort of go back to Kant because that's who he read when he was young. So he's he's inconsistent is what I'm saying. But so were Deleuze and Guattari. I mean, they yeah. even said it explicitly that they're not after consistency or coherence. They're yes. after the creation of concepts and the opening mm. to novel domains and things like that. So Jung was exploring new paths. And so I think in Mysterium Conjunctionis, he, which is, it's, it's all about alchemy. And it's, it's, he specifically looks at four alchemical texts from, you know, late medieval, early modern period. He shows how these texts are the precursor of depth psychology. And the way he talks about the archetypes in that book, especially, he uses the word transcendental and mm-hmm. he uses it in the correct way as opposed to, to transcendent, which is, you know, from Kant, which is, you know, this idea that there's the transcendent is this you know, fixed static domain above or beyond the world. Whereas the transcendental is the recognition that there's this always receding horizon of discernibility. And beyond that horizon of discernibility is a virtual potential domain Mm -hmm. but it's still it's still an imminent domain it's not it's there's nothing outside of the world because the world is infinite there you can't go outside of something that's infinite so the world is all that is the case and i think this is richard tarnas he's a a Jungian scholar that has been influential in my thinking about this and also james hillman i think is Mm -hmm. the one who has most brilliantly developed Jung's Jung's thinking he's a American psychologist who was actually, I think, born the same year as Deleuze. And the, hmm. the chapter on um, on Hillman, which is the one that comes right after Deleuze, it basically shows how many resonances there are between this great Jungian psychologist who's, as far as Jungian thinkers go, he's, he's the most you know, difficult and obscure and <laughs> philosophical end of that spectrum. So he's, he's great. I love, I love Hillman. But so basically, I think, I think, Jung's late conception of the archetypes are really resonant with, I mean, Deleuze talks about 
formal causes in, in so many different terms, mm-hmm. um, you know, quasi causes and yes. simulacra and phantasms and ideas, problems, questions, multiplicities. All of these, I think, are different inflections of a more subtle kind of, it's a formal causation. He says this somewhere that it's, it's a formal, an inflection of formal causation that recedes or that, um, that goes so far that it exceeds the duality of form and formlessness. Right. Um, so it's kind of exceeds this Aristotelian notion of formal cause and its rejection it, because it, it, it sort of dwells in the interstices between that and deconstructs that opposition to find some, what's this ambiguous reality that can't be localized either within human consciousness or in some objective transcendent domain that it's that mm-hmm. it's it's in this it's the relationality of the world that it's extracted from that relationality or constructed from that relationality i like that way of putting it and it kind of gets back to this other link with Deleuze and Jung which is Simon Don and it kind of helps to articulate why Simon Don was was so interested in individuation and why he was he took it seriously that you can't start from form and matter in this abstract way in the hylomorphic schema. You can't start with the constituted individual and sort of work back. You've already kind of uh, well, you've already you've already spoiled the the ground, right? You've already you've already uh, begged the question, if you will. And um, what I like about this is that we are starting to get to the heart of the matter that we wanted to discuss today, which was the relationship between Deleuze and Hegel. And Coop, I, I, I'm going to put you on the spot, if you don't mind. You, you mentioned enjoying the, the Hegel chapter, as well as the Leibniz chapter. And uh, I just wanted to know what stood out for you in terms of the rendering of Hegel in, in Grant's book. Oh, man. I guess it was just setting up a very like nice little dialectic, if you will, between this uh, sort of oppositional framework that I guess the sort of binary opposition thing that that, uh, Derrida gets into a bit. But I thought you had a really good example of how I think to me, this really pushed a good understanding of how like dialectics actually sort of work, at least in a sort of abstract way in relation to gender or like sexual difference. Yeah. Let me see if I can find this. uh, so I know I have it in my notes because Taylor commented on it. I mean, yeah, I, I, I replied. Uh, I replied. Uh, this is. Uh... I'll just go ahead and read this. The dialectic can be discerned in the consummation of sexual reproduction, in which the opposite sexes are drawn to one another in relations that are by turns harmonious and discordant to produce a third entity, the child that embodies a seamless integration of the two parents, and which itself is capable of eventually producing a further emergence from opposition by producing a child through such consummation. And like a newborn child, a bare philosophical principle is only an incitement to activity, is only a potentiality until it goes back through decades, generations, or even centuries of expression in relation to concrete experience, receives critiques and refutations that provoke its refinement and expansion until the ultimate conception is developed into a mature, nuanced system. I mean, we could sort of really delve into, I think, the sexual difference stuff, but I think this is really good. Like, I mean, this goes back to, to I think, the image of the bud and the flower and so forth was right. also another great way to sort of, I guess, draw this way that, I guess, I don't know how you would describe it. I guess the the sort of movement of history and, you know, we could get into the sort of Leibnizian sort of folding and so forth and like how that generates difference and 
and all of that from here. But I just thought that was sort of great how you can only sort of retroactively recognize the sort of these sort of distributed potentialities through the fabric of reality that sort of then crystallize in these moments. And then it becomes obvious. And, you know, this is sort of maybe even lead us to the way that they talk about the development of the state. Like it all, it comes all at once in anti-Oedipus, for example. I don't know. I feel like I'm just random rambling a bit there. And maybe one of you could rein me in a bit. <laughs> no. And, and the only, the only, I wasn't even, uh, when I, when I commented, I wasn't pushing back. I was, I guess, talking about how there is a way of, this is a great analogy for the dialectic and it's, it does, it does though show how these binaries are, are also constructed, right. And they're not necessarily naturally given. So that was part of my differentiation and and integration going on was, was sort of uh, taking the analogy, but also giving the Dridian. And that would be a good way to sort of work through the difference between, I guess, the, I guess a certain dialectic and the sort of multiplicity as it relates to sex. Like if we bring in Lacan, it's like there's a differential relationship between the genders and like, and the phallus, for example, right? Like there's no necessarily, there's no sort of transversal or like relationship directly between male and female or what have you on the different sides of sort of how sexuation works. It's more of like, I don't know how you would describe it, Taylor. There'd be like a, there's no woman. There's a, there's a becoming woman, if that makes sense at all. No, but I think this is a good way to set up how Hegel works through. It's a good analogy. It's a concrete analogy, more concrete than being in nothingness, for example, right? Yeah. That's kind of difficult, you know, just off the cuff to, to conceptualize with how Hegel usually starts the dialectic with being in nothingness. And this is, I think, one of the ways that Deleuze, you know, points back or, or pushes back against the dialectic is, is how, how does one start with a category like being rather than something, right? Uh, it's just one of the ways, but we can get into all the different calling into question of, of Hegel that Deleuze formulates and perhaps why he sees Hegel's dialectic as, I don't know if he, trying to think of the way he says it, but it's, it's either a perversion or like a confusion, calling it a perversion of like the, the Platonic dialectic or something is, is almost a, an honor to Hegel. It, he says something like, Hegel was the last thinker to like take the question, what is X seriously, right? It's, it's this, this way in which Hegel takes one, what he calls a propedeutic method, like this method of instruction in the Platonic dialogues that usually lead to aporia and takes that as the method itself. And that this way of reducing the dialectic, I think for Deleuze is, is, privileging non-being in a way that he he wants to privilege non-being in a different way, right? The non is the problematic rather than the negative. And I guess that would be my way of anticipating some of this dialogue instead of just fully fleshing it out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I, want to know perhaps your interest in this in this opposition, because you do spend a, a good deal of time working through it in your Deleuze chapter. And uh, you've already mentioned Malibu and, and her critique, which is a good one. But this is obviously a, a big topic. You also mentioned Hen- Henry Summers Hall, which I thought was interesting, yeah, right? That, yeah. that he sees ultimately there are resonances, but that Hegel and Deleuze are not 
their philosophies aren't compatible. And you kind, of, you, kind, you kind of push back against that. That would be my question is in this unfolding in your book of differentiation and integration, this is one of those climactic scenes, if you will, this the struggle between the two. Uh-huh. Maybe just talk a little bit about how these figures are, are working for you in your work. So first of all, um, I, I love both Hegel and Deleuze. Hegel, I, I loved more earlier in my kind of philosophical explorations and reading Deleuze really showed me his limitations. And so I ultimately agree with Deleuze's critique of the Hegelian dialectic, but I also think that he goes too far in his, in his rejection of the negative. But I think that Deleuze and Guattari, they explicitly relate the dialectic to the edible triangulation Deleuze in in the I think the preface the American preface to difference and repetition even says that there's a something like a titanic father complex in relation to Hegel in France in the 60s. So I think but as with these other affective complexes that we were discussing earlier mm-hmm. I think that it's this complex in relation to to Hegel which actually Vern Sisney is the first person person who suggested this to me that 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 Deleuze's reading of Hegel is really filtered through Hippolyte's reading of Hegel. And so, you know, Deleuze had a very, it was sort of like a substitution for Deleuze's relation to, with his father, because he was, Hippolyte was, of course, the, the French translator of the phenomenology of spirit. He was the eminent Hegelian in the 60s in France, probably, and in yeah. the 50s too. And Deleuze dedicated his first book, Empiricism and Subjectivity, in 53 to Hippolyte. So they were very, you know, they were very close um, student teacher relationship, which is, you know, somewhat similar to the father son <laughs> son relationship. And then in the 60s, so Hippolyte was Deleuze's dissertation advisor for difference in rep- what would become difference in repetition, but he really didn't like that Deleuze was critiquing Hegel. And I think, you know, he was also critiquing Hippolyte via Hegel. And I think this is just a classic archetypal situation. You have Freud and Jung, you have Lacan and Guattari. It's just this classic situation, uh, you know, even like Whitehead and Bertrand Russell, <laughs> where they're working really close together for a number of years, uh, this older and younger thinker, and then they have this break over this, this central concern. And so you know, Hippolyte started, I think, spreading these supposedly slanderous rumors about Deleuze's sexuality, which, you know, of course, I think to his credit, Deleuze didn't care about the content of the rumors because he's, you know, I I love that, that one. The anecdote? Yeah, the one anecdote where someone, someone calls him a a slur against being homosexual, basically. And he says, yes, and so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's just like, who, who cares? And I think that's one of Deleuze's Projects. I mean, he was in favor of a, of a thousand sexes, and he was really problematized this binary gender or binary sexuality. Yeah, and, in, know, for, in sexes, right? The in comes right, back, yeah. right? The yeah. And so, you know, he was married to a woman, but who, you know, and there's a lot of speculation about whether you know he and Guattari might have had some kind of uh, sexual if, relationship. It doesn't really matter. Who or, really cares? Yeah, it's fine. You're right. Uh, just to jump in for a second, that I revisited this because I had forgotten this. You know, the way that Doss brings it up is that he believes wife was like this prude and didn't really like him hanging around with Deleuze, his probably his star student. And it seems like Doss is is mentioning that she's the one 
who wanted him to sort of have this break, but that doesn't necessarily, right, right, yeah. that doesn't necessarily justify or explain why then he was talking shit and spreading rumors about the It's kind of an underhanded yeah. way to, to break the relationship, you know? Totally. I mean, it may be, maybe he, she was just tired of him complaining about Deleuze all the time. Or <laughs> like, yeah, I could, yeah. But you know, it's like, it's very similar to the Freud Jung break because Jung was kept critiquing Freud and critiquing specifically critiquing the Oedipal complex, that that was the only concession to a, a mythological mode of thought. And Jung, Interesting. And Jung was sort of like, well, but there are all these other mythical motifs that are also equally expressed and have nothing to do with the Oedipal dialectic. And so there's all of that, but that, but very far from discounting, you know, Deleuze's and Deleuze and Guattari's critique of the Oedipal, I think that it shows how his biography and, you know, his relation to these important figures in his life resonate with the work that he did. And it's, it's sort of like, it's an affective, I would call it an archetypal complex yeah. that, that can be expressed at a lower, higher register. So one can express the Oedipal complex as merely an Oedipal drama where one is mad at one's father and perhaps has some perverse, you know, sexual feelings towards one's mother or something like that. <laughs> but, in, you know, in this case, we don't, it, that's the thing, we don't really know much about Toulouse's relationship with his mother. But, you know, it's, so one can express it on that, in that register, or one can express it on the highest order as epic-making philosopher, you know, going so deeply into this Oedipal complex that it, I mean, that's, that's the thing, it's, Toulouse in an interview talks about how he and Guattari sort of viewed this Oedipal, they refer to it as kind of like an Oedipal accelerationism in, in Kafka. It's the acceleration of the Oedipal. And so Guattari, Guattari was more in favor of this Oedipal accelerationism. So the, where I think Deleuze says it, Guattari thinks that the more Oedipal you are, the better it is. <laughs> or something like that. And Deleuze, or push, push, push it to the point of like breaking through the wall or whatever. Right, however, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The schizophrenic wall or limit. But Deleuze is more more interested in the rejection of what he refers to as Oedipal filth. The, um, critiquing that image of thought itself. Exa- yeah, yeah. 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 That makes sense. And so it, it does make sense then how Hegel is the stand in for Hippolyte, this other this mm-hmm. series of substitutions, if we want to think in the Freudian sense of the father figures. And it also, it reminds me too of his break with another of his teachers, uh, Alkier, who was kind of mm-hmm. a scholar of Descartes and other thinkers of the Enlightenment. And I think it was in the dramatization of the idea which is a paper he presented in a year before his dissertation in 67, he's kind of asking these questions that he considers philosophical, which are very Nietzschean questions about who wants truth. We need to think about what it means to, to want the truth, right? What, is, what does it mean for... Is this the uh, method of dramatization? I think that... He's giving like, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. And, and Alkier is kind of like, well... Yeah this is disconcerting and this is not necessarily a philosophical <laughs> question, which I think it, I think it actually very much is. And, and that, that forms a whole, that forms one of the bedrocks of this critique of the image of thought where we assume like with Descartes to think of another thinker. And I'll get back to this in a second that Deleuze is critical of, but to think that you can forego certain presuppositions, you're not going to talk about 
man as, as a political animal or whatever. You're not going to start with these definitions, but you start with the cogito. You start with, I think, therefore I am. And Deleuze is like, well, you're just trading one set of presuppositions for another. You're, you're foregoing defining animality or man, but you presume everyone knows what it means to think and to be, right? And I think that this is part of Deleuze's pushback against we call it common sense, good sense, but also the goodwill or the natural light that supposedly all humans share in terms of thinking. And I guess that two things to get back to Hegel. One would be, I think that bringing up Descartes, I think Deleuze is, is very much, he doesn't center Hegel all Descartes as much as Hegel, but he's very critical of Descartes in mm-hmm. ways that are similar to Hegel. And two, I guess, would be sometimes my critique of the Deleuze-Hegel thing is maybe less concerned with misreadings because Deleuze has already baked into the cake that he's going to have these productive misreadings, right? A bearded Hegel, a a beardless Marx, right? A a mustache Mona Lisa, which I think is, you know, you could say that that's whether that's fair or not, but that's part of his collage portraiture of the history of philosophy. My pushback to Deleuze is that sometimes he downplays Hegel's importance. And it makes me think that you're doing yourself a disservice by making your rival, your enemy less powerful, right? It mm-hmm. kind of Nietzsche is, is very good on this, where he's like, if you're disparaging your rival, your enemy, you, you ultimately disparage your victory over them, right? So you're mm-hmm. kind of doing yourself a disservice in um, the more you Undermine the formidability. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. The more you caricature Hegel, and not that he only does that, but he can veer towards that. The less your uh, overcoming of Hegel is, you know, is monumental. When he compliments him, it's sort of in this very backhanded uh yeah. you know sort of way where he says he's he's catty he's a little bitch yeah catty <laughs> yeah exactly he's the the most powerful homage to the the traditional image of thought or something something along yes. those lines i think um malibu is, is so good on on this issue and also jean wall who is another one of of course another one of um Deleuze's yes teachers who he didn't have a break with and who he continued to you know they continued to have mutual respect for one another but you know i think what Malibu says is really true that Hegel, you don't spend so much time critiquing something that doesn't have a powerful hold on your mind. Uh, If he thought that Hegel was just ridiculous, he would have just dismissed him kind of the way he does with Wittgenstein now you know I oh yeah that, that, that would be funny. a whole other <laughs> that, the, the W is for Wittgenstein yeah. that, that is a funny where he what he calls him like the assassin of philosophy yeah, the philosophical I think that, catastrophe that that kind of shows what he thinks about analytic philosophy just right. in a nutshell but anyway go yeah. on sorry that Deleuze is I mean that that um Hegel is his white whale it's Ooh. his his yes. heteron, his the ultimate accursed one. It's the the enemy of the thinker, the pack of the thinkers of difference, is what she says. Yes, Hegel is certainly open, you know, susceptible to critique, and I think that he really privileged this one mode of dialectical thought, and he he expressed it in a you know profound and monumental and lasting way that created the precondition for all thinkers after him. I mean, he's probably the, was probably the most influential philosopher in the 18th century. I mean, maybe now Nietzsche is the most 
influential philosopher of the 18th century, you know, but in the 18th century, it's sort of like there's just inevitably going to be a huge backlash against the most influential yeah. philosopher of an entire century. I forget where I was going. With no, that, so to jump, no, to jump, no, to jump in, and this has come to light more in my, um, in our conversations with with Dan Smith and and reading his work, but it helped me to come to light, and and it just came to me now thinking back where. Part of perhaps what Deleuze is doing in Difference of Repetition is actually, you know, he brings in Solomon Maimon to help critique Kant on the question of it's not the conditions of possible experience, it's the genetic conditions of real experience. I wonder if this sustained dialogue with Kant that's going on in Difference of Repetition is this way of trying to quote unquote complete the system of German idealism in a way. <laughs> If Kant is is Hegel's daddy, Deleuze is going back and giving birth to this monstrous Kant, putting Kant on his feet, if you will, <laughs> completing the system. I think transcendental empiricism is this gesture towards trying to go back and fix Kant or to yes. set him right. In doing so, then right. you give birth to a totally different Hegel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Metaphorically, uh, putting Kant on his feet so he can move, so he can walk, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he can walk upright. But go ahead. Walk, walk around. <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah. Complete the circuit. <laughs> the circuit. Complete. Schelling even says that. Um, I think it was Schelling who, who says that Kant incipiently reintroduced the positive through the back door of the practical. Interesting. That, and I think Deleuze, Deleuze especially sees this opening from the you know Kant's primarily negative critical philosophy in the the third critique what is it called again the uh the uh, of judgment or you're judgment, talking about, yeah judgment and yeah. and that's that's where the discord and accord of the faculties comes in right right, right. Deleuze. yeah this gets back to the will to power because i think that the mm -hmm. way in which he formulates the will to power is in a Kantian phraseology, but with the Nietzschean twist so it is kind of like taking this is why i think Nietzschean philosophy is the first instance of where Deleuze tries to to set up Nietzsche as and Hegel as the rivals. It's in his own work, in Dippets of Repetition, where he takes this back up with Nietzsche to go right. back and impregnate Kant. He, he kind of changes the categorical imperative to the imperative of the willpower, which is whatever you will, will it to the nth power, right? right? And I think that's, that's kind of the Kantian impregnation, if you will, with, uh, with Nietzsche thought, if you will. Mm. I think that's that's part of what's going on in order to continue this battle that he's fought, you know, they set up his, his uh, beforehand, but, but in his own, in his own way and to deepen it specifically, I think you pointed out dialectic of existence, but there's this other, mm -hmm. he has this other, he redefines dialectic and dialectics in logical mm -hmm. sense and in different repetition. But I, I really like how he says the dialectic is a science of problems and the problematic. Mm -hmm. That's Problem where I questions. think, yeah. yeah, that's where I, I kind of find it where he's interesting and in the conclusion he wants to push back against absolute knowledge as sort of the end goal and more towards cultivating learning which is unconscious rather than this sort of project of consciousness so i'm just bringing out some of these little threads and right. and helping to set up more this this rivalry if you want to call it mm. that right deliz does i think in one text i think in the letter to a harsh critic he talks about Kant and Hegel as the enemies. That's about mm -hmm. as vicious as Deleuze will get. I was just going back to something you were you were talking about with Nietzsche. I recently saw a prominent Nietzsche scholar, and I won't mention this person's name. I'm calling them out, but All right. <laughs> um, they were saying that 
Nietzsche just hated Hegel. It was just it was just an unequivocal hatred for Hegel. And I just think it's it's much more complex. complex than yes, that it is. It is because the birth of tragedy. You know, he says it's either in um, an attempt at self criticism, which was I think it was like sixteen years after the birth of tra- tragedy, or in Ecce Homo, which is right. You know, just a few, right at the end. Yeah, few weeks or months before fully went collapsed yeah yeah, yeah yeah but he says he says it smells offensive oh no no it was in their letter it was in the uh, not the letter drawer it's in the uh, attempt at self-criticism he says it smells offensively hegelian but it, that's really interesting because it's this mythical dialectic but it's mm. literally the hegelian dialectic expressed in mythical terms as the apollonian and the dionysian right um, i see that I, I know what you're talking about now that he, right. him, he's reflecting on the birth of tragedy right right yeah, and say, yeah. he's saying that about his, his own work that it smells yeah. offensively hegelian so that, that that kind of points to his uh to his influence the fact that he was so influential throughout yeah. the 19th century like you said and then later in Ecce Homo, he says that he calls his Birth of Tragedy, his first book, a, a remarkable book or something like that. And it's it's his first revaluation of all values. So he right. still mm-hmm. found great value in it at the end of his at the end of his trajectory. Gotcha. And you know, even Heidegger, you know, I'm not a huge Heidegger person. I, I <laughs> try try to not give too much of my attention to a Nazi. But <laughs> yeah, well, um, <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> but if you have to respect Heidegger. I mean, he's just obviously deeply influential and, and brilliant. But he said he says about Nietzsche that he constructs Nietzsche not as an enemy of Hegel or as an anti-Hegelian, but as an as a partially critical heir to Hegel. Yes. And I think that could be extended to Deleuze because yes. I think. Deleuze talks about the already overman playing this refrain in different, it's the same melody, but in different words and a different, different instrument and different rhythm. And I think we can look at Deleuze as a differential repetition of the conceptual persona of Hegel, because yeah. Hegel was the dominant philosopher of his era who created the precondition for everyone to critique him and and I mean, it, be, it became the, the sport of Hegel bashing in the in the 20th century. Everyone loves to hate Hegel, but he's still hugely influential and still widely read. And, you know, I think that in sort of another register, Deleuze, even more than Derrida, did fulfill that figure, I think, in the late 20th century and even in the first decade of the 21st century mm-hmm. as sort of like a as a, the one figure that everyone was this hysteria around Derrida and it's the end of truth. And <laughs> is he, is he a post-truth conservative who paid <laughs> right. for Trump or is he a, is he a communist? It, you know, it's none of those, yeah, <laughs> maybe all of them. No, he's, he's definitely not a conservative, but um, no, no, that would be an interesting thing to talk about. But my point is that, you know, I think in the last 10 years or so since Deleuze's citations have surpassed Derrida. And even Zizek in like 2003, he said that Deleuze has become, which I think was a little early, you know, he was jumping the gun a little on, but maybe among the cognoscenti or something, that Deleuze has become the central reference in continental philosophy. And I think that's very true now. And so now he, Deleuze is the one that we have to contend with. And so I think what we're seeing right now is it's been about a decade of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of texts being published about Deleuze and deservedly so because I think he's absolutely wonderful and brilliant but now I think we're seeing that he's he's starting to become 
somewhat pervasive. And so maybe he's susceptible not only to critique, but to extension and refinement into novel domains. Rather than, I think there's a bit of a tendency among some Deleuzeans, and I won't name any name, in relation to any great philosopher to turn their work into an orthodoxy. Frida Beckman says that in her, in her biography of Deleuze. And it's, it's kind of remarkable to do that with Deleuze because he's so against orthodoxy. He's such a heterodox thinker who I think, you know, intentionally eschewed having followers. I think he said that somewhere, that he doesn't want followers. He wants people to do their own work and to yeah. you know, maybe be inspired by him, but to go off in their own directions. He says something like that. It's just very Nietzschean, right? That he doesn't necessarily want people to write books on him or to even write books on his books, but to sort of use his books to do something else. And that's that's kind of uh, how I see it too. And I suppose, Coop, I, I didn't know if, if I cut you off earlier, if, if you had something to jump in with. I think I have maybe one, my last question. Yeah, please. Kind of more towards the wrap up. I don't know if we're quite yeah. there yet, but if we are, I could... We can start to, to go there. It's almost been two hours. We can, I mean, Grant answered a number of my questions ahead of time, which I appreciate. And I, I do like that. But yeah, I, I definitely want to hear. I mean, I was more so just going to go to kind of what Grant, uh, what you see as sort of your next step in terms of, of your work. If this is a project that you feel like you would continue working on, or if you have new horizons that you're going to pursue. Because I just wanted to mention briefly, I guess, a couple of thinkers that would be, I think, maybe sort of enriching this um, conceptual like look at Deleuze and Hegel mm -hmm. and even Derrida as well would be like, you know, someone like like Leotard who wrote The Different. And Taylor, you might be able to speak to that a little bit as far as like if that's even a relevant uh, conceptual foil for Derrida and Deleuze, et cetera. But I think that might be something interesting to look at. I know that we've discussed looking at that book. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to read more of Leotard. I read, I read some of um, the postmodern condition years ago, mm -hmm. and I thought, mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting, and I, I just haven't gotten back to him, but I'd yeah. really like to read more of his work. I mean, Libidinal Economy is a f incredible <laughs> work. It's quite a read, so mm -hmm. yeah, big it, fan of that. Yeah, it's... And it's of course... It's, oh, sorry, mm -hmm. No, no, I just... Uh, I think the different is what I like about Cooper's question is that the different is part of the way I see it is a good lens at what you try to do in yeah. differentiation and integration, which is precisely, you know, the different, if I can really boil it down <laughs> or, or, or bastardize it, but it's, it's finding this mode of dialogue between two parties who don't necessarily share the same mode of discourse, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it's more complex than that, but that's kind of, I, I see some of that being worked out in your, in the way in which you approach the thinkers in, in, in this book we were discussing. That sounds especially resonant with the last chapter on Isabel Stengers, mm -hmm. who um, I love, and I, I hope I can meet her at some point. I think she, she's in her mid seventies now, right? Um, Belgian philosopher. So Cooper, you were asking about you know, yeah, really just kind of, about yeah, 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 I guess the trajectory, um, I want to admit real quick, just to throw this on top yeah. of this, because I think it's, it's relevant too is, and again, to browbeat Taylor with, with Sterner, but I think <laughs> Sterner is actually right. someone, intri if you, you know what I mean? If you're going right. to pursue, I guess, critiques of Hegel, I think that <laughs> his is a very interesting one that I don't know, it has some like 
at least partial relevance resonances rather with Derrida, maybe just like a little bit, but I, I think overall it's kind of really more so this like sort of another post con you know, it's attack on Kantian idealism ultimately. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to read more Sterner. Yeah, he seems really interesting. So yeah. So yeah. I mean, the directions I'm thinking about going now, the chapter on Stengers is shorter than I would have liked to be. I actually had to cut five chapters out of this book because oh, wow. interesting. <laughs> yeah. It was initially quite a bit longer and I cut a bunch of material from the other chapters as well. So the longest chapter is on the one on Deleuze. And then I think Hillman is the second longest. And then the ones on Jung and Whitehead and Stengers are all you know on the longer side. But Stengers is great. And I, I'm, I'm actually thinking I'd like to write a volume on her entire oeuvre. I think that would be a great thing to do. So I just came up with that idea about a week ago. <laughs> and um, and particularly I, because she writes a book on, on Whitehead, right? Yeah. Which, which I believe has been, that's been translated, right? I believe. Yeah. I haven't yeah, looked at it, great. but I was thinking your interest in Whitehead, that makes sense that Stangers would, uh, but yeah, I guess before, just to, just to insert, before mm. uh, telling us about your next writing project, I would like to know mm. a little bit about what you cut or the chapters you cut. I had chapters on, short chapters on Heraclitus, on uh, okay. Plato's Symposium. Oh yeah, um, that's great the, text. Just the uh, the speech from Eurixemachus, I think. Yeah, um, the, the medical he, doctor, right? Yeah, where he talks about Heraclitus. Gotcha, um, okay. I, I have a, a short chapter on Plotinus, not the whole Enneads, but, you know, just um, certain sections of, of the Enneads. On Nicholas of Cusa's Unlearned Ignorance. Which uh, is gotcha, gotcha. Gr- great text. I actually say somewhere in this book that I think that Deleuze performs a similar role as a sort of mediator of a transition between epochs in the way that Nicholas of Cusa does between the medieval and the modern. He's sort of like right on the cusp in that Renaissance moment. And I think Deleuze is doing a similar thing, you know, an opening to a novel epical construction. (laughs) Oh, and then there was a long chapter on Jean Gebser, who I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. No. You know, he had one magnum opus. It's the ever-present origin. And he's read a lot by... Jungians is sort of similar in a lot of ways to Whitehead. He's he's great. But he's just not read very much in the academy. I'd like to turn that chapter into a, maybe like a short introduction at some point. I'd have to sort of flesh it out and expand it. That sounds great. Um, yeah. So I cut, I think like 50 or 60,000 words out of the, wow. the, uh, the original manuscript. Honestly, I think it made the book better. Like for instance, Gebser isn't really part of this this gotcha. conversation yeah. and the way that all of these. So at the beginning of, of the, the last chapter, the concluding chapter with Isabel Stengers, I talk about how it's really two 20th century streams of thought that I'm looking at. The mm-hmm. one begins with Jamesian pragmatism. And then, you know, Bergson was really influenced by, but also influential on James. They wrote, you know, or well, anyway, Bergson wrote a preface for, for James, the translation of James's pragmatism. And I didn't know and that. Then, and James was actually going to write um, preface to the English translation of Creative Evolution, but he died first before he mm. could do it. So that would have been really interesting. And then Whitehead was really, those were probably t- his two primary philosophical influences. So there's that sort of like Jamesian, Bergson- Bergsonian, Whiteheadian, I think of as constructivist stream yes. of thought. Yes. And then there's the Jungian stream of thought, which is Jung and Hellman, mm. which for me, it really comes together in, in Deleuze because he was he was really influenced by Bergson, especially, but also by James and Whitehead and also by, by Jung. And then I bring Stengers. Stengers is, is deeply, I think her two 
most prominent influences are probably Deleuze and Guattari and Whitehead. I see her as as probably my favorite heir to those two those two streams of thought. And then the pre twentieth century philosophers, they're the ones who they had you know really important conceptual contributions to the 20th century developments. So Spinoza, Leibniz, Hegel, Schelling, and Nietzsche. That makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I, I respect about Stangers is, first of all, like having a sensitivity to science in a way that sometimes philosophy can mangle, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times philosophy will want to try to ground science or try to give science a direction or even like with Kant, try to make metaphysics the queen of the sciences or something in this in this other type of rivalry way. And so to have someone like Stangers, she reminds me a little bit, I know they have different topics, but in the mode of, of exposition and interrogation, she reminds me of Simon Doan, just to bring yeah. him back up for a second, because they both had this sensitivity and this practical knowledge of science but yet to be able to sort of integrate the discourses of science and philosophy in a way that produces something new and isn't necessarily a philosophy of science in, in that sort of uh, academic mode, if I may. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit, I don't even know if that's fair to the philosophy of science, but you know what I'm saying. It's, it's, <laughs> it has its own philosophical bearing. You probably won't be very surprised to hear that she was really influenced by Simondon and writes about him quite a bit. I got to read more Stangers then. I, yeah, yeah, she's she's amazing. She's I, got I, a lot I, of work on like a chaos. She's got some work on chaos theory that yeah. sounds really interesting that might be like uh, probably like, you know, building on chaosophy. I would imagine if she sort of is in the trajectory of Deleuze and Guattari. Yeah, Order Out of Chaos, super yeah. famous book. I, again, that's the only I've only just like flipped through it, so I I, I have to I have yeah, to admit to. my my ignorance on on Sangers. So that's that's yeah, something that that, I, that kind of that stuff I, wets my little uh, intellectual <laughs> appetite. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. She got her start co-writing these texts with Ilya Prigogine, the Nobel mm. Prize-winning scientist. Oh, um, nice. And so I think that was she wrote two texts with him, and then yeah, Order Out of Chaos and. New Alliance, right? Which is about philosophy and science, right? This new alliance between the end of. I was thinking of the end of certainty. I can't remember if if the new alliance is that one with Prigogine. Yeah, that was one of their other books that I knew of Mm -hmm. that that they Mm -hmm. did. They did write together was just this notion of a of a new alliance between among at least those two disciplines, if not building a further transdisciplinarity. You know, to use a fun catchphrase that's now. perhaps meaningless in, in, in the academy. She's great. I spent a lot of time reading her solo work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also she has she has some really interesting co-written texts. I have I haven't read everything by her, but I've probably read about 90% of her books at this point. That's why I'm I'm really looking forward to just going back through and rereading everything I've already read mm-hmm. and you know re reading the things I haven't read. So I'm, I'm kind and of perhaps writing a book on it, right? Is yeah, that- I, th- I, th- I think that would be a great thing to do because I think she's she's a philosopher that that should be more widely studied, and I, I think maybe part of the reason why she's not as widely studied. I mean, I think part of it probably has to do with just her gender because yep. she just doesn't fit the the classical image of what a philosopher is or a scientist, perhaps too. Yeah, but also you know, so cosmopolitics is is really great. That's sort of that and thinking with white editor. Are her. It's two, you know, two volumes of cosmopolitics and thing with white. They're probably her two magnum opuses. But cosmopolitics gets very deeply into science stuff. You know, and some of it's you know beyond my, I understand. <laughs> beyond my understanding. But she is ultimately a philosopher. But I, I think you know, if if any any of 
anyone out there, any listeners out in the dreamland or uh, looking to get into her work, I, you know, I think another, her one of her most recent books, Another Science is Possible, is a great Ooh. place to start. And also um, Capitalist Sorcery with um, Philip Pignar is okay. great. Yeah. Okay. So they're, I like they're the like title. Shorter, yeah. Really good books. That's great. And and you'll have you'll have to try to plan a trip over to, to Belgium to visit her. If you said you wanted to, to meet her at some point. Yeah, so. I, I tried, I tried writing her and I don't know if, you know, the, the email I, <laughs> I, I found was, was the correct email, but, um, Great. you know, you were, you were talking earlier about how you, it's good to, it, I think that's a good thing to do to write the people whose books you love. Cause people might be surprised. Yeah. That, you know, that even, you know, well-known philosophers, don't always get a lot of fan mail, so it can mean a lot. It can yeah. mean a lot, a lot to yeah. someone to, to hear to hear some nice words about their book. Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to to cajole Zizek into coming on, but, <laughs> but you know he he says he says he's he's too old to to do the the philosophical back and forth, and I I think uh, that, that I think that that that's uh you know that's probably not true, but mm-hmm. you know I'll, I'll keep trying. I'll keep a uh, keep reaching out to him. Well, that would be that would be amazing. It, it, I'd listen you know, to it. You could just turn on the recording device and let him go, and he, he's a one man show, right? So, uh. right, right, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, your work, which just came out last month, right? I guess in June, is that right? Yeah, it came out on uh, June thirtieth. So, so, so exactly. it's, it's <laughs> so it's it's already a month old. You know, mm-hmm. get it any way you can, either through Amazon or through other means by which so, one, subterranean means. Subterranean means uh, the Rutledge site, if in case my publisher is listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's above board. Get yeah. through Rutledge, and yeah. uh, it's, uh, I think it's great. I still haven't read it all, so I still have more to read. I, I have to now go back and read the Sanger chapter. I really did like the way in which you mobilized these conceptual persona and had, you know, kind of had a, a dialogue, or if you will, uh, as my old professor used to say a chorus of scholarly voices right you had this this chorus of intellectual voices sort of interacting in the book and uh mm-hmm. you know i think that that your next project sounds good because you have it sounds like you've got stuff that you can recycle for <laughs> another project and more on stingers would be, would be great i would i think that that you're right that perhaps there there, there needs to be more more literature on her and, and her name given a little bit more uh, discussion thank you guys so much for to having me on here and for your the greatest compliment a philosopher can get is just to have someone read your work and take it seriously and be interested in it. So I, yeah. I really, you know, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. And uh, to preempt Coop, since uh, Coop, did, didn't you have a something equipped? Oh yeah. <laughs> Damn. We're really in sync. If you were reading my, my mind there. Well, I just wanted to make a comment about, I think my, my favorite part of the book came in the acknowledgements. There was a, <laughs> Bit of text and it read Cooper Cherry on there. Oh. Also, also Taylor Adkins. So uh. yes, yes. I, I, I got I got the alphabetical diff. You know, I got, yeah. I, I got the uh, you know since you did it in uh, I guess you know how, how does one order the acknowledgments when you have? I, I I'll take the alphabetical uh, hierarchy there. So uh. I, for first and foremost, I want to thank Taylor Adkins. <laughs> yes. Yes, personally, personally, uh, I remember uh, you reaching out. I didn't even know you were, you were working on this project at the time, mm-hmm. but but when you reached out about the Simon Down, it was a uh, it was nice because there was about a six, seven, eight month delay specifically because of COVID between 
sort of the finalized version and the publication. So I was able to get that to you ahead of time with, I believe there's minimal modifications. So it was mm-hmm. nice that you were able to, to get something out of that, specifically the Yoon connection. So the fact that you, you kind of sussed out something that I hadn't really thought about, right? Which mm-hmm. was this Yoon connection between Forcimondon and Deleuze. I thought that that was, that was nice that you were able to foreground that and highlight that. And so like, it's interesting that, that it came back around to me, the dividends, right? Of, of, <laughs> of my translation <laughs> through, through your work. That was nice. You, I, I got to see certain things. So sometimes you're too close to a, to a mm. text. So that was, that was cool. It was extremely helpful because I think that really helped me to think about certain issues in Deleuze and Guattari and in Sanger's as well. So yeah, thanks for sharing that with me. And also I, I should mention that um, Mark Sabin, who's a professor at the University of Essex, who's one of the you know people who gave me a quote on the on the book, he told me, I don't know, if, I hope I'm not, you know, spilling the beans, but he told me that he's working on a on a book about Jung and Simon Dom. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So well, there you go. I mean, in your translation. <laughs> I mean, that, that honestly, that's great. And we mentioned that text, you know, as you said, that it bookends the second volume. It's the very last text, right? Where he kind of brings up the alchemy stuff that mm-hmm. he finds interesting in Jung. So that to me, uh, I would love to read a book on, on Jung and, and Simon Don because it honestly, when Simon Don goes into the psychical, specifically with Freud, that was something that I got really attached to, like on the section on anxiety. But mm-hmm. to bring bring out this other element of psychoanalysis through Jung is stuff that I don't know enough about. And mm-hmm. that's always exciting to to read about, you know. So that's yeah. that's part of why I really appreciated your book, learning not just about some of the thinkers I love and feel like I know, but some of these other thinkers that I'll need to come back to specifically, like Stangers and Hillman, you mm-hmm. know, bringing that to the fore and, you know, reading the chapter on James, who I also don't really know very well, seeing mm-hmm. those voices integrated in this chorus of scholarly voices that I already enjoyed, that kind of opens up new horizons or, you know, uh, right. The ever the ever receding horizon, the ever receding horizon, though <laughs> elicited by the Dionysian chorus of scholars. <laughs> <laughs> well, Grant, we're going to let you go. We're going to stay on just to like discuss some of the next schedulings. But this episode should be out in two weeks. We'll keep in touch with you and let you know when it drops. And uh, really appreciate having you on. And yeah, um, absolutely, I loved our discussion today. Me too. I had a great time, you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Awesome. Definitely getting a physical copy of the book because, you know, my my name's in it. So you can you can count on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, get, Cooper, get, give me your address and I'll, I'll send you one. Right on. But, okay. but it'll be through media mail. So it may or may not make it. To hey, you. Right. Yeah, on. No, no it'll, it'll just uh, we got all the time in the world to wait for that. And I do appreciate, you know, I, I know, Cooper, we were joking about it, but I, yeah, but we, we appreciate total, you total it. respect. Yeah, no, no yeah, doubt. <laughs> we appreciate it. I appreciate the acknowledgement. And, uh, and and I'm just so glad we had you on today. So thanks again for that. Thanks, guys. Once again, oh. thanks to Grant Maxwell for joining us on this week's edition of the Missionary Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, the pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the 
vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.